0: Hello everyone and welcome to Think Change, a podcast from ODI, where we discuss some of the world's most pressing global issues with a variety of experts and commentators. I'm your host, Sarah Pantuliano, ODI's chief executive. This week we are looking at the policy proposed by the UK government to deport people identified as illegal immigrants or people seeking asylum to Rwanda for asylum processing. A judicial review of the policy was originally slated for July but now it has been pushed back to September. However, the UK government continues to defend the policy and has not ruled out deportation flights over the summer. The case itself has been hugely divisive in the UK, in Rwanda, but also internationally. You know, the move has been supported by some, is alienated many others, and has garnered condemnation from organizations such as UNHCR, the Church of England um, and also the Rwandan government's official opposition. So, what started as a legal argument has actually caused a ripple effect into areas of religious morality, of political ideology. And at the same time, it's raised practical questions about whether this plan is lawful, whether this plan is workable, and, and why Rwanda is the destination of choice. And now, of course, um, we have a Conservative Party leadership election underway, following the resignation of Prime Minister Boris Johnson The run the flights have already featured highly on the list of issues, you know, the leadership candidates are discussing, and they look set to feed into the discussion on immigration as the candidates position themselves over the summer. So with all this in mind, I'm really pleased to be joined by an excellent and varied group of speakers. We have representatives from the legal profession, um, from humanitarian policy and refugee action. Um, so a, a very warm welcome to Becca Hurd, uh, who is a legal associate at Michigan um, specialising in immigration laws. Welcome, Becca. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm also really pleased uh, to welcome Isa Alonso-Garcia, who supports refugees and displaced people in Calais for collective aid. Um, Isa joins us from Calais. Welcome, Isa.
1: Yes, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here today.
0: Great. Thanks, Isa.
1: Um, And last
0: but not least, our own Sorcha O'Callaghan, the director of ODI's Humanitarian Policy Group. Welcome, Sorcha.
2: Hi, Sarah. Lovely to be here.
0: Great. Um, so the impending judicial review is actually just one piece of the puzzle. Um, Bika, can you give us an overview of the legal case as it currently stands
3: um, you know, and how we got here? That's a big question. Um, so the Home Office announced the policy on the 14th of April this year. And the policy essentially states that those who arrive in the UK to seek asylum may be sent back to Rwanda to have their claims processed. One of the things I think that's most important um, to first think about in terms of um, this policy is the intention of it from the government and the memorandum of understanding, which is the instrument by which the policy was implemented specifically states that this is to deter people from making dangerous journeys to the UK to claim asylum, which are facilitated by criminal smugglers when they have already traveled through safe third countries it's peculiar that Rwanda is kind of also being touted by the UK government as having, you know, robust access to justice and adherence to human rights, whilst also saying, you know, this policy is supposed to put people off coming. Um, I think that that clear kind of disjunction between the aims should be the um, the first red flag to those who care about human rights. Um, the Home Office says that it's compliant with its legal obligations both nationally and internationally but as I'm sure most of the listeners will have heard, um, there's been considerable action in the courts just to, against this point. Um, the legal challenges to date have really focused on whether the specific individuals set to be removed should stay in the UK until the legality of the policy is decided. The legal challenges um, to removal succeeded, mostly in the domestic courts. Um, One unnamed Iraqi applicant eventually turned to the European um, Court of Human Rights, um, where they said um, that he shouldn't be deported. Um, And they flagged a number of concerns that also formed the basis of this judicial review. Mainly that um, individuals sent to Rwanda may not have access to fair and efficient procedures to determine their refugee status, that there's insufficient evidence to say that Rwanda is the safe third country to which individuals may be returned. Um, And in any event, in those initial claims, that there wasn't a legally enforceable mechanism for individuals who could have been sent to Rwanda to be returned if the if the challenge to the policy was successful. Um, in terms of what the what people are arguing in the courts, further concerns are the really tight timeframes that um, the Home Office office have decided to put in place, um, largely to stop last minute injunctions to prevent removal. So um, individuals who are set to be sent to Rwanda will only have kind of between seven and fourteen days to obtain legal advice and present their complex cases. Yeah. Um, individuals struggle to access advice as it is and that really short time frame really really limits that um, there's obviously the issues with compliance with the Human Rights Act and, and issues that if people don't have access um, to legal advice then then the risk that the rule of law is undermined so those are the kind of key challenges that will, will be set out and it's, it's very concerning Well, Thank you for illustrating the legal case so clearly,
0: uh, but Sosha there is more to this, tell us about some of the wider humanitarian and policy issues that actually feed into this decision.
2: And maybe just to pick up on what you were saying, Becca, and just to really start at basics and that these are actually people. These are people who are acting on their rights to claim asylum. They're not illegal migrants. We all have a right under a you know, human rights law to claim asylum. So these are not illegal in that respect. And we know that these people who come to the uk under their own steam that most of them actually are recognized as refugees so about 75 percent of these people are recognized as people who have a fear of a forward fear of persecution and and even more people who go on to appeal their cases actually are then recognized as refugees so these are extremely vulnerable people who are being put through this you know frankly horrific uh Mm -hmm process and I think that's the the first issue to talk I th- about. Yeah.
3: I think one of the one of the points also that arises just from from the initial um the initial applications to the court so the um the Iraqi national that I mentioned whose case went to the went to the European Court of Human Rights um there's a suggestion that he may himself have been a victim of torture um claiming asylum in the UK is a stressful long process mm-hmm. as it is and you're exactly right that I think The time of humanity is really lost.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's talked about in terms of numbers, it's talked about in terms of roots. But I think, you know, at its very basic, when we talk about kind of the humanitarian implications, I think we really need to focus in on who these people are. And then I think the second issue for me, in terms of the wider implications, is about, you know, UK's obligation under international law but also under the policies itself that it signed up to under um, you know the global compact on on refugees that it will do its fair share Um, and so if you look at the numbers so there's 90 million people were displaced last year a record number of people who were displaced the vast majority about 85 percent and we all know are hosted by low income countries, often on the periphery of conflict or displacement um, uh, producing countries. And so you have the likes of Lebanon where a fifth of the population are now Syrian. You have the likes of Uganda who have, you know, hosting millions of South Sudanese and, and Congolese and other nationalities. A fraction of the world's refugees make it to Europe. And then a tiny fraction make it to the UK. And so the idea that one of the most rich countries in the world is paying a low income country to, you know, um, undertake its responsibilities under international law is not just... uh, a concern in terms of the play out of the policy itself in the UK and for these highly vulnerable individuals who are being sent to Rwanda. But it really says something about the UK's um, you know, undertaking of its fair share, but also a race to a bottom in terms of refugee protection um, more globally. Um, and maybe the third uh, kind of wider implication is to think through how these deals have worked in the past. Um, And so we know that this um, deal is modelled, for instance, on the Australian deal with Papua New Guinea or in in Nauru, which they've run since 2013. Um, And these have been widely condemned by Human Rights Watch, by Amnesty International, by Save the Children, um, because of the repeated reports of asylum seekers being violently attacked by locals, um, by the authorities in Nauru. There have been horrific claims of widespread physical and sexual abuse. So you're sending vulnerable people who in the main have um, you know, themselves been through you know, really extreme situations to a mechanism or through a mechanism where they risk being uh, for further um, you know, made vulnerable um, in a in third country. And so the whole thing you know, smacks of uh, UK just not being accountable for its human rights obligations.
0: And I would say it's beyond that, it's not just not being accountable. I think for a country that very often um, or always wants to be seen to champion the rules based system internationally or take the moral high ground when it comes you know, to um, global solidarity, I think that deeply undermines its position, the rhetoric around you know, both global Britain and beyond. But let me, let me turn to Isabel. Isabel, the judicial review was lan- launched by grassroots organizations such as you know, Care for Calais and the PCS Union. Why did you take action?
1: Uh, well, first, I think this shows like the incredible amount of work that grassroots organizations do to fill a gap that the, the state is missing at the end of the day. And then I think it shows how when grassroots organizations and other civil society actors come together and join forces, big things can happen we can have a big impact and we can fight back the government. Um, And so here at the border, we're extremely grateful for the work that several UK-based organizations and charities such as Freedom From Torture, Detention Action and others um, have done in leading the the legal battle against the government and mobilizing public opinion. We are very, very inspired by, by, by all that. And especially because they've done all this in such a short amount of time as well. And yeah, I think here we feel like we have this duty as well to amplify uh, what's going on. And we have a responsibility towards the people that we work with because we witness the lived experience every day. And sometimes, you know, we don't see these stories being passed on the media. Uh, We feel like, we are not being listened to or seen enough. And it's quite frustrating. Um, so hopefully, let's see what happens with the judicial review, but hopefully it'll be declared unlawful as it should be.
0: Thanks, Isa I mean, one question is, you know, why Rwanda? I mean, do you think the destination matters or is it you know just a moot part of the wider attitude I would say to immigration
1: and asylum seekers by the UK government? I think we could say, It's both the destination and the policy in a way, but I think we need to read this Rwanda deportation scheme as another symptom of um, this violent and racist migration policies that have been long uh, been there and put into place by the UK and the European Union. Um, And this whole discourse of protecting the borders. And we ask ourselves, protecting the borders from whom exactly? From people fleeing war. And persecution, as has been mentioned just now, or from families who are seeking safety and a better place to raise their children. Um, most of the people that we see here in Calais come from countries which are currently at war, such as Sudan or Afghanistan, Syria, um, as has been just mentioned before. Um, so, you know, it's 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 outrageous to, to see how the UK government is investing more and more money to fly people away instead of spending this money to help asylum seekers to get the support they need and the protection they need, uh, which is something that the UK has committed to um, with the UN Refugee Convention and all the international treaties. So the location doesn't really matter uh, because people are just gonna come back. This is extremely resilient, extremely um, determined people who've lost everything who've you know, been traveling for years and this is not the first border where they are. You know, they've, they've crossed many borders. They have to deal with a lot of police violence, a lot of humiliation, and they're just going to, you know, keep coming. And if they're sent back, they're going to come back. And this is one, what they've been telling us as well. Thanks, Isabel.
0: So is there any way to square um, this so that it actually makes sense? I mean, is, is there an argument to be made in favor of the plan?
2: I got the sense from your initial interventions.
0: <laughs> the case.
2: Well, I think if you, you know, hear from the government in terms of what their plan is, um, they're talking about disrupting the business model of organized crime crime gangs um who are making trips to the UK by dangerous and unlawful routes. But I think it's there's a real question for me. And you talked about it, Becca, around how you know, how does transferring asylum responsibility to Rwanda have any impact whatsoever on smuggling on the one hand or on uh, refugee arrivals on the other hand. So I think on on the first, it actually plays into the business model of smugglers and traffickers by further making these these routes ever more difficult um, and therefore ever more expensive. And so you're you're funding and fueling um, the smuggling routes. And we see this. So, first of all, we moved from asylum seekers arriving on, you know, on regular transport through planes and ferries. Um, and over time, that was shut down through uh, through visa processing, through enforced uh, visa regulations. And people moved to travelling by by trucks and by lorries. Um, and that was the first step in illegal smuggling. Um, and And then that was shut down through border enforcement. And so we've not only you know, just, I guess, moved the smuggling into a more uh, profitable um, and established uh, market. But we've also um, seen what's happened is that the people are just taking ever more precarious and perilous routes. Um, And so by, you know, introducing ever more hostile uh, policies, what we're seeing is we're fueling a smuggling market um, and we're making... um, these journeys ever more risky. So in 1993, I think about 60 refugee um, deaths occurred um, through uh, people trying to make their way into Europe. Now we're seeing about 3000 people um, losing their lives every year um, by taking ever more perilous routes. And so, you know, this has been recognised itself by the Home Office. So you have the current permanent secretary of the Home Office himself declaring that they don't think that this policy is going to have a a deterrent effect or there isn't an evidence of that. And so if they're saying that themselves, it's very difficult for outsiders to actually figure out, you know, why this would actually impact on either the smuggling um, uh, business or to deter migrants, as as Iza has just mentioned. Mm -hmm.
3: Okay, you want to come back on this yeah I do, it, for just from a from a legal perspective that is exactly the point that i think is always missed um and i always wish was asked more of the government you know you say you want to create um you know you want to stop people smuggling well then create a safe and legal route for people to come to the uk it doesn't okay. exist at yeah. the moment and the, you know the home office rhetoric about concerns about people smugglers i mean it, it is just nonsense when there are then those routes simply don't exist. Um, They should, if they're interested in in sorting out this issue, allow individuals to submit claims from overseas, set up the large resettlement schemes like they've done with Ukraine, less successfully with Afghanistan. Why not with the asylum system more generally? If that really is the issue, you know, there's that, that, that's, you know, the answer. Spot on. So is this then more about party politics and
2: media messaging then? Well, I think that's the most horrible thing about this, because it's not clear, you know, that this, this policy is ever going to be really enacted. I think we will see another judicial review. We'll see this playing out in court, Um, but I'm not entirely sure that that's the point. I think it's always been about politics um, I think that um, this is a way for conservative government to demonstrate the far right of their political constituency who care deeply about immigration issues. Most of the population don't or actually have a benign attitude or a positive a- attitude. But there is a hardcore percentage on the right that care deeply about immigration issues. Um, and what the UK, UK government is doing is really cynically and callously um, showing to them that they're being tough on immigration. Um, this also provides a very useful, I guess, uh, space between the Conservative government and Labour, um, you know, that they have very different policies on, on a clear issue than their uh, Labour opposition. And I think, you know, um, this has been in many ways a great distraction. So immigration hasn't been in the media for the last six months. Um, But then there's this high profile Rwanda case at a time when we know the UK government is, you know, facing diminishing popularity. And so it's a great distraction. And I think that's what's most horrible about this is that it's, you know, it's the callous use of very vulnerable individuals for political point scoring. Um, And it may never actually come to pass. Um, So so I think that part of it Mm. is is really disturbing. I think they also, the government know that
3: this is going to be challenged in the courts, and those kind of more sceptical among us, um, I think, view it as almost another kind of another political mechanism by which the government will turn on, you know, the lefty lawyers um, and use this as an example um, of how, you know, lawyers and the courts get in the way. Um, of what the government want to do and what they you know what they present the, Of course of you said um lots of lots of studies show that it's not the actual will of the people but what the what the what the government present as as the will of the people and it it all ties into this um you know the current rhetoric at the moment um with the with the bill of rights and and the way in which um, the government's attitude to judicial review um, and human rights, you know, continues to, to try and, and weaken those rights.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point, actually. And of course, all the rankings post-Brexit I and mean, also sort of mix with that. Um, Isabel, what difference do you think does this make to public opinion? Is it having an impact at all, as Sosha was saying? Does it play just to, you know, one part that is really, Um, has very rigid positions on immigration, or is he having an an influence more broadly, you think?
1: Well, I think first we need to understand that this is not just another crisis. Um, It's not something that, you know, it started in 2016 with the big jungle in Cali. As we know, migration is a global phenomenon, and it will just continue, obviously. We've seen uh, displaced communities in Cali for a very, very long time, since the 90s, when refugees from the Kosovo were uh started to arrive here. Um, so, you know, I think this shows how this is like a long standing uh, issue and something that we all should be focusing on and talking about um, as a society in general and something that the media should be talking much more about in a much more responsible way. So, and then in terms of, again, how public opinion sees migration, I think it's vital really for the media to inform properly um, to, come, to come here to Calais, not just when there's a big tragedy or a shipwreck, as we've seen recently, um, but, you know, to, to come and interview displaced people in the living sites, so we can see and hear them and really understand what that demands and what do, they, what do they think about this whole Rwanda scheme, for example, why they want to go to the UK. I feel like we don't hear or see them enough in the mainstream media as if they didn't have their own voice or the lives were not real, really. And we need to push not just for the humanitarian perspective but of this issue, but also for you know like the political perspective. So like to understand what the politics behind all this. Um, so not just, you know, beyond aid or getting donations here in Calais and Dunkirk or providing emergency response. Um, the public needs to know as well why all this is happening and question this, you know? So like, what is that they can do as citizens to change the situation? Um, why, you know, why, what do we mean actually when we say that border skill, right? Uh, the public needs to be well-informed in order to, to think about all this in a, in a proper way.
0: Thanks, Isabel. So you were saying about, you know, the attitude of the public to mm-hmm. immigration, mm-hmm. that they are mixed. And we know, you know from all the work uh, that is the same as anxious middle that can swing from one side to the other um, quite easily so can you tell us a little bit more about you know what we've brought out in terms of the knowledge that we have um, around the perceptions and the attitudes of the public in the UK and beyond in Europe I would say.
2: Yeah so ODI has been doing really interesting work tracking public perceptions towards refugees and migrants um, over the past five years Um, and you're absolutely right Um, so opinion in the UK, and I guess concern around uh, migration and immigration in the UK spiked around uh, Brexit and tw- uh, 2015 and 2016, when we saw a lot of Syrians arriving into Europe. But now, following Brexit um, and the departure from the EU, actually we see that most people it's not a priority issue for them, except that hardcore um, of 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 migration sceptics that I spoke about earlier. And most fall into the kind of anxious middle that aren't really pro-immigration or anti-immigration. Um, and they have quite nuanced views about it. And so there was a recent um, poll done by Ipsos Mori actually in June. And only two percent of people who responded in the UK thought that immigration was a priority issue for them. So this is really out of kilter. This policy is really out of kilter with with public opinion. Um, and when they were asked about a choice between whether we should have fair asylum policies in the UK or should um, you know, go down this deterrent route, most people felt sixty five percent felt that uh, a fair model was something that they would want to, to see, and only twenty seven percent chose a deterrence model. And so I think this contrasts greatly with the level of political um, attention to these really egregious policies um, and um, the the level of media, um, I guess, storm around around these issues. Um, And, you know, I think, as as you said, you know, what we don't see is, you know, more education um, around the, the humanitarian and human aspects of this. Um, So it's quite out of kilter with, I think, um, the opinion that that exists more broadly.
0: Thanks. Um, I think I was just reflecting that obviously one of the, the motivations, you know, that is presented in terms of introducing such policy is to try and create a hostile environment so that you know, traffickers are deterred, as you were saying before, um, and asylum seekers are deterred, so they don't, you know, don't come over. Isabel, can you tell us a little bit uh, from your conversations in Calais with asylum seekers? How much do they know about these policies? I mean, you know, they, they tend to asylum seekers tend to get their information from other asylum seekers from potential traffickers. I mean, tell us a little bit. Is this resonating? Is this creating this hostile environment, um, deterring people?
1: I mean, we see the number of crossings in, increasing in the last two, three weeks since weather conditions have been a bit nicer and it's hotter and the, and the waves are um, less dangerous. So people keep crossing and and people keep coming. And also, you know, people are already here. They're just not going to disappear suddenly. And, you know, again, as I, as I said before, they are determined to go to the UK because they have family there, because they have friends there. Because, you know, they speak English, because they come from former colonies, maybe, because there's a bigger diaspora that for many, many, many reasons, uh, people are still going to cross. And the only problem here is that they're going to take on more risks and make these journeys even more dangerous. Uh, Only uh, since 1999, when records started, 400 people have died just in this crossing in the Channel. I think this says a lot about like how deadly this type of policy is and how it's just ineffective. Like it's not really deterring anybody. Of course, it's creating a lot of confusion and fear. And I think some people might be waiting around for now to see what happens and if people are gonna be sent back really. But as I said, like really crossings are multiplying. So I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's really having that, that deterrence effect.
0: Very interesting. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, Becca, part of the legal challenge revolves around um, what the Home Secretary Priti Patel describes um, Rwanda as a safe third country. What's your take on this description?
3: I think it will be a really key part of the legal challenge. Um, the Home Office's uh, country information suggests that access to relevant interpreters um, is not likely to be high. Um, There's concerns about how many specialised asylum lawyers um, there are, and the experience that Rwanda has with dealing with claims from the relevant countries. Um, The Home Office's own equality um, impact assessment that it undertook in relation to the deal states that there are risks to the LGBTQ plus community, um, and beyond this, there isn't anything specific in the agreement about those being removed, being able to access healthcare, financial support, whether they'll be able to work. It's a really big concern because, from my understanding, Rwanda doesn't provide um, universal healthcare free at the point of use. Um, the Home Office say that they'll provide, you know. They'll do their own assessments before sending anyone over, but we know how limited those assessments can be from our own experience here. Um, and the memorandum of understanding also doesn't state whether legal assistance will be free, doesn't stipulate minimum requirements for, for any part of the policy. It's a really high-level document. Um, and I think that you know fosters part of the, the, the concern about, about what this deal will actually look like. I think there's also a a difficulty in this topic um, because the, the bigger picture is that the UK and wealthier nations just need to be showing solidarity in supporting Rwanda and the refugees it already hosts, not just alleviating its burden and pushing it back on Rwanda. So, you know, while it's important that we talk about, you know, Rwanda's um, record on human rights as a part of this I think the, the big picture is that it shouldn't be that the UK is simply pushing its burden off and I think there's a delicate balance to be struck there that this doesn't just become a conversation about Rwanda's record um, and that we think about the the policy that has you know been instigated by the UK it's a, it's a really difficult one to to talk to, but I think it's, I think it's an important part of the conversation. Very interesting. Well, we're
0: almost at time, but if I can ask each of you, just in 30 seconds, if you can, one final um, comment, you know, the, the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has, has challenged those who oppose the plan, saying that at least the government has a plan, um, and, you know, he's asked your position for an alternative. So if you could suggest an effective and compassionate alternative model, what would this look like? Who wants to go
1: first? Um, Isabel? I think in just very few words, uh, it's quite simple. Just ensure legal routes, provide safe passage, and then diversity and inclusion, educate kids on these values. That's all for me.
3: Excellent. Um, Becca? Um, yeah, there's, there's a few things. The safe and legal route. It's the, it's the most important thing. It's been set up before. We can set it up again. Um, dealing with the asylum system as it stands, there's a huge backlog of claims. Keeping people waiting for years on end is cruel. Um, and also, um, I mean, we have we kind of slightly touched on Brexit, but we as when we were part of the European Union, there was the the Dublin asylum system, which didn't really um didn't provide for a huge amount of removals but we rejected that um that system which allowed us to um to to send refugees back to their kind of points of entry in the european union um so if anything having removed ourselves from that is a is a pull factor so um it's also about you know joining together um and speaking to to our neighboring countries and, and seeing how we can work
2: together to 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 build an efficient asylum system.
0: Thanks, Beck And finally, Soldier.
2: Yes, two things to add to that. First, I think if the UK government was going to do a deal, it should do a deal with France to set up a joint asylum processing system so that not only if they had resettlement schemes, but they could have you know refugees processed in France and they could travel. Uh, safely and legally to the UK and I think the second thing about fixing the outdated um, and ineffective asylum system is not just about the processing aspects but actually we know that many refugees who when they actually get their um, uh, successful claim that they um, end up in destitution because they're not supported uh, effectively into jobs and into groups and so you have these people who wait for years Um, to uh, get their asylum claim recognized, and then they fall into destitution and homelessness. So I think there's a raft of different things that the UK could do uh, to improve upon its uh, asylum policies. And if it's pumping hundreds of millions of pounds into this, it it could pump those resources into a much fairer and effective system. Quite right. Well, thank you
0: so much, Isabel Becker Sorscher, for helping us navigate you know, the complexity of this policy, the legal case. I think more broadly, where this sits in terms of the UK's international obligation, its moral standing. And I think the reputations it wants to maintain when it comes to global solidarity, which actually is portrayed as an element of you know, the so-called global Britain. Um, Thank you to our listeners. I hope the discussion today has offered um, new perspectives on this issue. Uh, Remember to subscribe to the show. We are on all your favorite podcast providers. And please do submit your reviews and feedback. We'd really love to hear what you think and how we can continue to improve. Until next time, thank you for listening.